0: But um, we are in the moment, right here, right now, and we are here for Richard Kramer. He is the Emmy and multiple Peabody Award-winning writer, director, and producer of numerous TV series, including 30 Something. My so-called Life, Tales of the City and Once and Again. His first short story appeared in the New Yorker while he was still an undergrad at Yale. This is his first of many novels, we're sure, right? Many, 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 many novels. Okay. So please welcome Richard Kramer. Oh. This this is so nice. The the first thing I want to say before we start this is that I want to make it very clear that I will do anything to block the nomination of Susan Rice for the Secretary of State. Uh, um, And uh, it's so funny you said the first of many novels, because I read a thing on the, uh, somewhere today about uh, this young writer uh, seeing Philip Roth in a restaurant and going up and saying, oh, I worship you, I worship you, I've just written my first novel, and Philip Roth sort of took him by the arm and he said, stop now. It's a terrible life. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I got to tell you, writing this was a Total fucking nightmare, but but there were good days, and there were enough good days to keep me going. I mean, you know, when you write a book, you know, it's not like writing a TV show. You never get dressed, you never go anywhere, you know, you never, you know, you never sleep, you never eat. It's misery. But then it got published, and you know, the rest is 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 really good. I'm particularly excited to see some people here tonight who were in the play version of this. This has had many many forms. Um, It started, um, uh, you know, in many ways. Ways long before it had a form but, but one of the early forms was it was a short film that I wrote at HBO which was a sequel to the um, uh, whatchamacallit the, uh, the little movie they did called If These Walls Could Talk which was about abortion <clears throat> and and this was the follow up to it and Robert Nathan wrote one of them who's here I wrote one, Charles Bush wrote one uh, Will Sheffer wrote one who created Big Love and we could not get it on the air because there was not a single person who was out at the time who would make any there was nobody who was out at the time uh, who would who could lend their name and get publicity for it so that that's a mere you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, just so much has happened really quickly. Um, and uh, it's so nice to have people here. I was in San Francisco last week where their attendance was spotty, you know, uh, and my last night, um, it was pouring rain and I went into this huge bookstore and there was one woman there um, who was a woman woman um, with very short steel gray hair, who <laughs> was probably younger than me. And uh, and and I started speaking, and she raised her hand about five minutes into it, and she said, "When does the Photoshop tutorial start?" And and I said, "I think you're in the wrong room." I said, "I'm talking about this book that I was said." Oh, I'm working on a book, and I said, "Well, you know, you're sort of trapped, and you know, you say, you, you know, I say, well, tell me about the book." She said, "Well, it's about a woman who goes into an antique store, and she sits in a magic chair." <laughs> And I said, what happens when she sits in this chair? She said, she remembers her Nazi past. <laughs> What do you, how can I get this published? And I you know, pretended to be very serious about it, you know, but to see real people here, and people, I, have, I just want to you know, identify Edward Tournier who played um, the young man um, who I'm about to uh, read. from. So I'll just tell you about the book. The book is a book, it is a real book. It's not a play, it's a book, it's a novel. And, you know, it's, it is about two families in New York City who share up uh, and we have Matt Shackman who directed and So this is you know, I, this reminds me of my, my mother's 80th birthday when there was a huge table of people and my father went around everybody at, at, at the table and said how they were related to him, but never to her. But (laughs) It comes horribly back, but people who have encouraged me at every step of the way are here tonight with this. Um, This is about two families in New York City, super tolerant, super liberal, super progressive, super cutting edge, um, who have a teenage boy who moves back and forth between them. Uh, This boy is named Wesley, this young man played Wesley in the play version of this, Um, and he tells his mom, who is a, the executive editor, at Alfred A. Knopf, a very you know, sort of fancy New York lady, and his stepfather, that he wants to move in with his gay dad um, you know downtown and his dad's partner of 10 years, who runs a restaurant that is in the building where they live. And because everybody in this family is so, so enlightened and so, so progressive and so, you know, they have a million gay friends, this is no issue at all, everybody says oh this is wonderful everybody's happy about this except the dad himself who nobody ever really asks his opinion and who is very uncomfortable to have his son there for any period that's longer than three hours and now the kid is moving in for three months and so this is uh, the book is written in a series of first person sections uh, and then the last chapter of it is in the third person uh, so it sort of switches in the last thing and I, I I did that because that was how I felt... I could find my way into writing fiction. But this, I'm, the first passage I'm going to read is from Wesley's point of view, where he... it's the very, very beginning of the book, and he tells us something about his life and what has happened that, that starts to move the plot. Okay, so he says, A lot can happen in a day sometimes. Not every day. Some have one event, T.O.P.S., like a person opens a can, or a leaf falls, or a terrorist alert changes colors. Don't try to read it wrong, because I I made it a little bit better for this. (laughs) Most days have no events, like in our school, which is run by Quakers and teaches moral precepts and is a shining jewel in the community, but can we just say it, It's it's fairly eventless. Not today, though. Bear with me. School's out. Me and Theo are on our way to Taekwondo. He's my best friend, he always has been, and boredom is the thing that binds us. Or fear of it, anyway. We don't bore each other, though, and my guess is we never will. As for his name, Theo, he got it because his mom, who's an art historian, wrote a book about the loser relatives of famous artists. (laughs) Theo Van Gogh was Vincent's brother. Theo knew Vincent was the brilliant, tormented genius in the family and helped the world to discover his work. Personally, I hope that I would do the same if I had a brother who was a brilliant, tormented genius or even an ordinary brother. But I'm an only child. As for Theo Van Gogh, He died, screaming, chained to a wall, crazy due to syphilis, which was a disease that was pretty popular in that period. I once asked my Theo if he was worried that maybe the name had a curse on it. He said he wasn't. His mom just chose it because she wanted him to sound special and vaguely European. So when the time came, it might impress the admissions people at Brown. (laughs) But that is still two years away, thank God. What matters is now with us right here on 86 between second and third. History was made here today in a way. Theo was elected president of the 10th grade, swept in on a sea of change like Obama the first time before the disappointment set in. I was his campaign manager and I'm proud to say we never went negative, although we certainly could have against his opponent, a Shannon Traub, who posted pictures of herself on Facebook, giving out cookies her maid had baked to homeless guys, you know, to show her compassion. That was the first event that made today eventful. And as we walk, he brings up the second. Okay, he says, my speech. He means his acceptance speech given today. He's not referring to his pledge to balance the 10th grade budget, have farm-to-table snacks in the vending machines, or to call an end to the Jerusalem settlements. He means what came after that when he said, and I quote, I thank you for this mandate, and now in the spirit of full disclosure, I would like to state that not only am I your new president, president and everything, etc., etc., but I am also, quite frankly, not to put too fine a point on it, a gay guy. Some people cheered, some booed. Jake Rudnick, who has a rage coach, shouted, I never would have voted for you. <laughs> and Shannon Trout, for some reason, turned to me. So, she said, are you gay too, Wesley? Are you by? Are you anything? I didn't know what to say. I mostly get asked, have I finished the bluest eye? Or am I really planning to wear that shirt to school? Or would I like to go to the youth night hoedown at the Museum of American Folk Art? <laughs> but to have a person probe my essence, that is the day's third unusual event. I took it seriously. I answered as best I could. Shannon, I said go fuck yourself, <laughs> which is more or less where we left it. <laughs> so that's a little kid. <laughs> His mom is right there, hi. Um, so that is how we meet Wesley. Wesley, when he moves into Dad's apartment, which is in the Theater District of New York, and is is the restaurant, there's a lot of LA people here who will remember the restaurant Orso on Third Street. And this is based on that. Um, and when he moves into the apartment, the father, who is a prominent, prominent, prominent Charlie Rose appearing, Rachel Maddow appearing, gay rights lawyer, you know, who is presentable in every way, who has basically made gay marriage happen in New York, who's Andrew Cuomo's right hand man. he. Just He's the guy who's uncomfortable in his own skin, and the presence of his son makes him really anxious. George, whom I'm about to read, is another story. Is there a George here? I think Bill couldn't come, Bill Brocktrop. Um, George is another story. George is a guy, he was a former actor, He is now in the restaurant business and he is as authentic and present and real as the day is long. And the kid instantly gets this. And glom's not not, glom is the wrong word, but he he connects to him in a very wonderful intimate way. He sort of finds what he's looking for in George, very unselfconsciously. A lot of shit hits the fan because of this later, but it hasn't hit the fan yet. And uh, what we, we find uh, George thinking about what's going on. It's about two in the morning, and he hears footsteps on the roof, and they're Wesley, and he knows that. And Wesley has asked the night before, he says he wants to talk to his dad and George. Dad has not come home because he is so busy and and famous and, and you know, called upon. And these are George's feelings as he thinks about that. He says, 2 a.m. Two men, me one of them, slowly crumbling in the bed we flip four times a year to extend its life. I've got my side, Kenny's got his, and from time to time we meet in the middle to do what men like that, who are men like us, sometimes do. It's not always hot after 10 years, but it's kind. Mostly we sleep, we work hard, both of us, but I can't sleep tonight. Kenny can. The sheep he counts double as a turndown service with chocolates on the pillow. My sheep gossip and air kiss and ask for the dressing on the side. Have I been in restaurant work too long? And then there's the sounds above us on the roof. Greetings, prophet. Angels in America, I played prior in one of my, the, the end of my acting days. Those were the angel's famous words as she crashed through the ceiling, feathered and flatulent. It could be her, but more likely it's Wesley who's sleepless himself. Maybe he needed some air. He's packed in so tightly with us here. We just, and we just accepted, you know, the lack of space. New York is a place where you're often too easily grateful for not very much. And now is a good time to look. But we won't. After a long time with a person in familiar rooms, see what happens here, the things you need, shower mats, baking soda, ants killed or a drip repaired, turn into conversation. And if you met the need, what would you talk about? Okay. Now it sounds like he's dancing. I think of Fred Astaire flinging sand and dancing upon it, a floor above Ginger. Is that Top Hat? Has Wesley even heard of Fred Astaire? How could he have? He's 15, he's hardly heard of himself. And I've heard him up there a lot recently. Last night he wanted to talk to us. Something must be up, and Kenny couldn't get home. As the straight acting face of all things gay, Charlie Rose wanted him at that brown round table to talk about election results. I could have sat down with Wesley myself, but it wouldn't have been right. He needs his dad, that's why he's here. And I didn't know if I'd like having him here or if he'd like me. But I found that that doesn't matter with a kid. What does matter is that you keep yourself available to hurdle forward with them, to wrap yourself around the endless bumpers they're crashing into in hopes you can limit the bruises. But maybe I'm wrong about that. What do I know? He's not my son. Maybe I'll set out a muffin. Quickly. I don't want him to see me. And some milk. Maybe when he comes down, he'll be hungry from all that rooftop dancing. I could tell him all about West Side Story. I did that show. I was Tony. But I probably won't. I want him to be him, not me. And once again, he's not my kid. That's George. Thank you. I'll give you just a little taste of where George came from. George, uh, when I was doing a TV show about 25 years ago. Uh, we were working very hard, and I used to go to Orso every single night when I got home. And for about, I counted for about 800 meals. And this guy, here's here's our Bill Brockdrop, who played George so beautifully in the production of this play. I thank you for coming. <laughs> just talking about. <laughs> It's thrilling to see you there. Um, And there was this guy who took the most wonderful care of me, and I would just show up. This was before car phones. This was before email. This was before anything. And he would just bring me to the same little table, and he would leave me alone, bring me always the same food. And I realized, after years of this, that I had never even bothered to learn his name. He just was the, the guy in the tie, you know, who always said, hi, Richard, where would you like to sit tonight? And I was really shaken up by that about you know like how easy it is to invisibilize somebody, and I must have, to some degree have felt that I was invisibilizing myself, or I had been invisibilized. But I just thought, wow! And I wrote him a letter, an actual letter, and I said. You know, I never even bothered to learn your, your stupid name. And, and, you know, I'd like to take you out for a cup of coffee. And he, he, you know, wrote back to when we got together and he said, no one knows my name. He said, no one is supposed to know my name. He said, but it was interesting that you wanted to know my name. And he told me what his life was like. I mean, it's, you know, it, this was a life I could not imagine because I didn't have the imaginative capacity to think about somebody's life who was not important to me. Uh, who was only useful to me. And he had a very rich and interesting life that is nothing like George's life in the book, but was very specific, and, um, uh, and he gave me all the restaurant lore. So anything, if it, the restaurant stuff feels at all realistic is because this guy told me what it was like to work in a restaurant. So this, um, that's George. And now here's Kenny, who has always been, in every incarnation of this, a problematic character uh who I happen to really love. Mckinney is just a guy who is who is, do, who is the perfect person because he feels that is going to make him feel easier and more comfortable in the world. And of course that never works. Um, you know he is in charge of this committee, that committee he is you know has a million you know lucite plaques for his compassion and his humanity and he just doesn't like himself and because he is presentable, and because he is you know, articulate, he gets to a certain point in the world. But this, I haven't done this at a reading before. I'm gonna give you a little taste of him. Um, Some people either get him or they don't get him, and it's an interesting barometer for me. Um, uh, So he's looking in the mirror in the bathroom, he's shaving, and he says, hurry, okay, I've got to, always, and today is more of the same. Lunch with Christine Quinn, who is the lesbian, real person who works for Bloomberg. A trip to the tombs. The Times wants another op-ed piece from me as to Slate and the Huffington Post, and I'm so old I still believe the Times is the one that matters. So I will craft a statement, as I do again and again. George says I should set up a crafts table for statements alone with glue gun, pinking shears, boxes of glittering progressive cliches. And what is pinking exactly? I'm sure George knows. He'd pretend he didn't if I asked, as he doesn't always respect his own knowledge. But he'd know and he'd say, well, it almost doesn't matter what he'd say. Sometimes I think just having the right to say those words, George says, is all I need in the world. He's funnier than me, certainly, and I suspect smarter, too. He'd never believe it, but it's true. He's always saying he knows me, but I think I know him better. I know what he won't hear about himself." Today's statements are called from the internet, of course, that constant reminder of the blackness of men's hearts. On today's to-do, I've got to tackle the online adoption service that forbids qualified same-sex, et cetera, et cetera, fill in the blank, from et cetera, et cetera, filling in the blank. And there's the Georgia General Assembly, always reliable, keeping up their fight against the employee fired after announcing her transition from male to female. And each skirmish must be responded to without playfulness, irony, humor, so non-professionals, as George says, can see that we are under the skin, just like them, only totally different. But you press on, you can't turn away. You face the world not as you find it, but as it finds you, because it will. Use that, I think. It's the sort of statement made by someone who will one day be assassinated. Not that I'd want to be or would make an interesting target. I'm just the lawyer, the one who chairs the committees, the talking head with the unpierced ear who counsels always caution, caution, caution. George says I should run for something. He says his dream is to stand next to me on a victory platform, blankly beaming, addicted to Percocet, a keeper of the secrets in a helmet, a keeper of the Secrets in a Chanel suit. But what would I run for? And I already spend way too much time in Washington. And, we'll, and I'll be there next week to meet with a roomful of the usual suspects. I will direct us to the making of pro-marriage commercials featuring christenings, pillow fights, spry grandparents at same-sex Thanksgiving tables. Face the world, real or not. But my face first. Real enough, although hard to find, as the mirrors all steamed. It always is, as we don't have a window in here, only ants and underwear, and photos from shows George was in from that time of his life that was over when I met him, when he was Tom in The Glass Menagerie, Tommy in Tommy, Tom Joad in The Grapes of Wrath. He said that it was lore among casting people that if you had a character named Tom, just bring him right in. He has lots of stories like that. I guess some people just do. Have stories fly through the air and stick to them, like paper clips to a magnet. Wesley's reading Grapes of Wrath in school right now. I'll be there, Ma, I'll be there. Sometimes I hear George in the kitchen, late at night, saying those words to himself, as if he might get the call to do the play again and wanted to be ready. Something about folks growing the food they eat. In the night, I'll be there. Those are the words of something like it. I wish I'd seen him in it. Now, do you hate Kenny? That's the thing that you can do in a book, you know? You know, you can get into the, that was the, that was the fun of writing this, was you can get into the movement of their thoughts and their soul. and. Thank you, Miss. I think I finally like him myself. Uh, Now, Theo, this is interesting. Theo is Wesley's friend. I read about him. Did anybody need a break, or are they sick of it yet? Um, Theo is Wesley's best friend. And this is Theo. This book really came together over the space of a quarter century, with you know little you know seeds here and there, and I didn't even know it was adding up to whatever. But this was a story somebody told me about 15 years ago about the son of a person in New York, who went to a private school, who in a school assembly came out in front of the entire school, and this. Was just not being done then, and it was it's it stuck with me forever. And it really was the thing that it's the springboard of the action. Pardon me, the action of the story. And um, and that boy is now alive and very much alive in writing. And I chose not to let him know about this um, because I just said that's his private life. I mean, and it's the the only detail is that he came out in school. But this is Theo, who is Wesley's lifelong friend. The mom, the two moms met in Lamaze class, and they're two real. They're wise guys, you know, I mean they're 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 smart fifteen year old New York boys. But they're also I mean also you know, they're more than wise guys, I hope. So here's Theo. And Theo says, So here's the thing. If I'm gay, which I am, it's not because my dad was distant, which he wasn't. That idea is just psychology anyway, which to me and Wesley is just religion with a waiting room. This elaborate system to convince scared humans that life and cancer and car accidents are not utterly and totally random. And aren't people ultimately more interesting than some old bald guy's diagnosis of them? I hope I am. I want to look forward to 11th grade and future revelations. So we were in this restaurant with my mom and grandma and my sister when my dad said Chinatown, which is code. It means should we get a little away for a little while just the two of us? It also means let's go to Chinatown. <laughs> so we left, we walked even though there was a little rain. I'm actually secretly a little sick of Chinatown, but I went because it seems my dad feels in control there, as he believes he knows how to order in Chinese. (laughs) Once after he'd rattled off this Chinese stuff, I saw our waiter go back to the kitchen, point at my dad, and say a few whispered Chinese things to some other waiters. They all laughed and laughed and laughed, and stopped when I stared them down. I never told my dad that, though. People need their illusions, especially in restaurants. So we went to the Excellent Dumpling House, which despite its name is pretty modest when you get inside. My dad told me about this buddy of his named Joe. Joe was the first actual gay guy he ever knew. He got to know him in the service and was proud to say that even though it was a very different time, most of the other guys in the platoon thought Joe was a pretty great guy too. Now, I don't think my dad was ever in the service, but it was still nice of him to bring gay Joe into our evening, whether or not he was real. (laughs) Then we discussed sex. He told me sex was beautiful, or it could be, and while he personally didn't know all that much about the gay aspects, he would be willing to learn if I felt like talking about them with him. (laughs) The food came and we switched our focus from sex to scallion pancakes, duck with sour cabbage noodle soup, and sizzling beef chow. I've taught myself to remember what I eat. As Wesley says, he's learned from his time in the restaurant world that when people ask you how you've been, at least in New York, what they really want to know is what you've eaten recently. (laughs) We were eating when my dad put down his chopsticks and told me I was his best friend and I should always know that. After we ate, we walked around Chinatown for a while, sometimes just walking, not talking, sometimes telling jokes we'd each recently heard. My dad's funny, although not as funny as he thinks he is. Most people, I find, think they're funnier than they are for reasons which may lie deep in what the really famous psychologist Carl Jung called the collective unconscious. But who knows? No one. We went home where my mom and my dad and me talked some more. I knew I was lucky, and I appreciated everything, and still, I don't know why, but I wish they'd been just maybe, just a little upset. I don't mean to the point where I'd have no choice but to run off and be a male prostitute in Seattle or anything, and not go to a good college, but just a little, just a little upset. That's Theo. (laughs) <laughs> Where's Noel? Is he? Yes. How are we doing time-wise? We're doing good. We're doing good? I do want—I I have to apologize for this. Well, I can't apologize for the rain. But I hope we're not being too distracting when we try to cover the books from the... Oh, yeah. You know, Sorry. The, thank you. But you're doing great. Time-wise? She's he doing, doing great. Yeah. Good. Great. I have, like, two more little ones to read, including I'm so... I have. The wonderful actress, Suzanne Ford, who played the mother, has, I'm so happy to see you and thank you so much for coming. Hi. Um, now, this is The Stepfather. I think I'm going to read you first because that's that's that. this makes sense chronologically. The two, bo- this doesn't ruin anything. This is not a spoiler alert. You know, the two, when Theo comes out in school, Wesley is, and he gets beat gets the shit kicked out of him, they get gay bashed and very brutally bullied. Um uh and Wesley is there by association trying to help his friend. And they wind up in the emergency room of um St. Vincent's Hospital, uh which is probably closed now, but but um it's still there? The new one. Um and it's it's serious what happens to them, particularly to Theo, who is who has a concussion and is really quite screwed up by it. And when this happens, Wesley's parents, and particularly his mother, uh, makes... A leap of assumption that says, oh my God, if Theo came out in school, this can only mean one thing, which is the thing that we are most afraid of, even though we don't know we're most afraid of it, which is that he must be gay too. And then Wesley's gay dad thinks, this is the last, this is part of Wesley's dad's problem, this is the last thing I ever would have wanted was for my own son to be gay, even though I am the gay standard bearer and none of them would ever say this They're, I don't want to say how it plays itself out but mom who is this very effective you know New York person calls a family conference uh, in the restaurant that George owns where she just wants to get to the bottom of it um, and you know just to you know, you know have it return to the status quo and get Wesley to come back home again and it goes wildly wildly wrong Uh, And I'm not going to tell you how because that would be ruining it, but this is uh, where she, as she comes in, I have it over here I think, Um, yes, this is the very beginning of her section. Her name is Lola, and so we are with her. This should be fun for you, Suzanne, to hear this. It's 3 p.m. The city is perilous today. A storm is moving in, someone was stabbed on the subway, and a girder fell on 6th Avenue, decapitating a therapist. (laughs) As I sit down, I see that to my left, I have Kenny, my first husband, and my past, and to my right, my present and future husband. I am parenthesized by husbands. And there's George, of course. Wonderful George, Kenny's partner, who is not my anything and there's no Wesley in sight. Wesley, who is the reason we're gathered here? Where is he? Where else would he be? He went upstairs, for a minute, his Facebook wall, which always makes me think of Jerusalem. It had to be dealt with now, of course. It's always now. Somehow the world is suddenly filled with indispensable fifteen-year-olds. Enough, I say. I'm calling him. I look at my phone, which shows the battery dwindled to a stump of red, like the dead peg that lurks behind the most sparkling porcelain veneer. I have one call, like a murder suspect. As I touch the numbers, a churchyard's worth of text bells ring at our table. We are all, all of us, sought after and successful people. Text. I am an editor. Five of my authors, five, have won Pulitzers and won the Nobel. They bring me texts, we roll up our sleeves and we make them better. But now is not the time to wish the world would go backwards. As Wesley's phone rings and rings, I whisper words to remind me who I am and who I will be. I am Lola, Farmer, Bowman, Corman. Loved by my husband, admired in my field. I save buildings, I promote literacy. I raise funds for libraries. And now, suddenly, I also seem to be someone who might be described as the victim's mother. The victim, excuse me, being a formerly cheerful child who mumbles fine, if that, when I ask how he is, who lets me know my love and concern are a burden and a bore, Uh, Who a 14-year-old doctor has held for observation to make sure he has simply lost two teeth and not suffered any brain damage. A boy who has to check his Facebook wall before we all agree that all our lives have changed from this moment on forever. Aha, and there he is. I think he needs a haircut. And shoes. Where did he get those? He smells, too, that boy smell, like the insides of old sneakers, like an egg an hour away from going rotten, (laughs) like what a colleague of mine describing her own son's scent calls pouting and resentment mixed with vinegar and sperm. (laughs) (laughs) Like one of those boys they find in forests in France who have been raised by bears. With us uptown, he's clean and soapy smelling, but he's safe there. And he is going to be safe again, if I have anything to say about it. And I do. Believe me, I have everything to say about it. I do. Then the scene begins. That was for you. Um, And I think I'll read Ben, who is the stepfather. Wesley is very lucky. Ben is, is is the ultimate New York City second husband. He is the one that the really cool women marry for love, who has usually had an entire first family before this, who have either, you know, he's either a widower or a divorcee, who has grown children, who deeply loves the woman who becomes his second wife. And you see it a lot in New York City. And that's who Ben is. Um, And Wesley has been extremely lucky in that his mother married this man. She didn't leave her husband because he was gay. He hadn't come out when she left him. She left him because he was cold. And she was really looking to take care of her kid as much as anything else, and she meets this extremely loving, warm man. And the kid is instantly magnetized to him, and so is she, and they've had this very, very happy marriage. And Ben has brought up Wesley beautifully and respectfully, without ever trying to become his father. So this is Ben um, anticipating the return of Wesley, who has disappeared after a series of incidents. And so he tells us, he says, professionally, at least, I'm a symbolic man. And that's on account of my field, the human eye, and all that can go wrong with it. You've probably heard that I'm the guy who saved the vision of Mayor Bloomberg's mother. I did. Then she died. I don't do miracles. If I was an ears, nose, and throat man, I'd be, to quote my late Uncle Morris, just another Jew with a job. But that's not the case if you're a Manhattan eye man. It goes back to Oedipus, probably, who was stupid enough to blind himself. If I'd been there then, with what we know now, I might have been able to help a little, as long as he didn't eat after midnight the night before. (laughs) Or write a lot. I'm not a modest guy. I know what I can do and what I can't. And I find, although I try not to exploit it, that when people find out what I do, their whole manner changes. Suddenly, I am a someone. I am august. I am wise. I am Zagat-rated. This is mostly because I think that everyone is afraid of going blind, except the blind themselves. They don't fear the going, they're already there. What does that mean? I don't know. Aphorisms come to me. I don't invent them. One out of ten makes sense. The rest is noise. Or silence. Whatever the hell the quote is. I hear my wife. Ben. She's calling me. She's in the kitchen in the dark. She likes to cook in moonlight like a witch. (laughs) It helps her think, she says. And this is a woman who thinks all day. I'm here, my bride, I tell her. She likes to be called that. It's the second or third time I've done it today, since we got home from the fun in the restaurant. I join her in the dark, sneak my arms around her from behind as the water bubbling in the fish poacher sends up in the steam notes of salmon and dill. Saul Rapkin, a colleague, is a wine maven who's always talking about notes. A finishing note of oak here, a sustained note of butter there. Saul is an idiot. We're all experts on the wrong things. And speaking of notes, I sing to Lola quietly a favorite song of hers, a favorite song of ours, Lost in the Stars. Why do we love it so? Because we were lost till we found each other. I can't speak for her, but I can speak for myself. She was my star, and she is my star. Lola is my light. How can we be hungry, Ben, she asks me. I'm always hungry, I say. I guess I mean me, then, she says. You have to eat, I tell her. Do I, she says. I don't know what I have to do, honestly, because it seems on the evidence of today, anyway, that I don't know who I am. She looks at me now. Does she want this essential information from me? How do you tell a woman in her own kitchen the tale of herself, a woman whose job it is to help others dig deep and deeper into who they are, a woman who can meet parts of herself she hates, as she did today, secret parts, and show them to another person, as she did to me? She's brave this girl of mine. I have always been surrounded by brave people. At my age, a man sees these things, and he realizes that that's his luck. I see Wesley now, getting off the elevator. I've left the door open just in case. From the way he looks at me, I sense he's not quite ready to be announced. I wave to him. He waves back. I don't tell Lola yet. We can figure that out later, babe, I do say, after Top Chef Masters. And maybe I'll take Branwell out to pee. I'll be back. Branwell hears this and is already at the door. He's gotten his own leash, as always, which has never impressed me. If he'd gotten his own breakfast or tickets to a show, trust me, I'd acknowledge and acknowledge and acknowledge. That's Ben. I got more, I got more. Can I do one more little shorty? One more little shorty. Okay, one more little shorty, because it's, it's another Wesley one, and it's, um, um, I would really like to share it with you, because I've never read it in public. Um, this, it's short, too. It's, um, I head for the sixth train and decide to shake it up by becoming the blind guy, this person I invented. You go as far as you can with your eyes shut until you hit someone, at which point you have to say, sorry, I'm the blind guy. It's more fun than it might sound. So I start, and I don't take more than a few blind steps when I bump into someone, someone who knows me, it seems, because this person says my name, Wesley. When I unblind myself, I see Shannon Traub, crushed by Theo just hours ago. What are you doing, she asks. You looked crazy. I had something in my eye. I said it was excruciating. In fact, I may need medical attention, so I'd better get home. See ya. As I turn back for the subway, I hear her again. Wesley, you live that way, she says, pointing east, 130 East End Avenue. I laugh to make her feel small, but maybe she's someone who never feels small. It so happens I say that I have two residences. I've been in my dad's for the last, like, approximate two months. Your dad, the gay guy, says Shannon. Yes, I say, that dad. And he's a very big deal, too, in gay circles, if you care. Whatever, she says, I'm tolerant, even about Theo. People are people is my motto. I think that's a motto? I say, that sort of sucks, that sort of sucks as a motto. And she sighs. She says, I know, I know, I know. I'm working on it. My non-Ivy college coach says I should have one just in case. Shannon has two college coaches. It should be in another language, preferably. You want to know a secret? She doesn't wait for the go-ahead. Donatella Gould blew Morgan Blatt. Or blows him, actually. It's ongoing. I lie. I lie. I knew that, I say, in the deepest voice I have, chef's voice on South Park, that deep. Do you blow Theo, Shannon asks. Somehow I don't mind her asking, maybe because she seems genuinely interested, like she was trying to figure out something bigger than blowjobs. Actually, I say, I don't. She sighs again. I believe you. Don't ask me why. There's a ding. It's a text for Shannon. Fuck, she says. My mom. She texts me all day with potential SAT words. She says if I don't get a head start I'll wind up at BU or Bowdoin or something and then she'd have to jump from the roof of our building. What's the word, I ask her. I like words. Most words. Gnostic, she says. G-N-O-S-T-I-C. The G is probably silent. We pass the word back and forth like a puppy you're trying to socialize when something happens that makes no sense. I have a boner in the street while trying to define an SAT word with Shannon Traub. (laughs) How could that be? I have to go, she says, as if she sensed it. And so she goes, and so do I. When I get to Grand Central, I remember something George once said, that every person moving through it has one secret they believe they could never tell. As I stand there for a moment, very still, I almost imagine I can hear those secrets whispering in people's heads, and it makes me dizzy. I am an iPad, tilting, stuck between vertical and horizontal as I wonder, what would my secret be? Is it something you discover, but that's been there all along waiting? And say you never do discover it, what then? And what if the secret you think is yours is actually someone else's? Sorry but i worry about these things thank you oh, all these people thanks a lot thanks for listening hello it's just so wonderful to see some to see three embodiments here of these people who were so wonderful when they did it and really helped me with the writing of the play because they 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 just thank you all Suzanne and Bill and Edward and Matt who directed the play so beautifully and Ron Lago Marcino who was the first person to read it and read the book too and was it just meant so much that response um, anybody have any questions I could talk about it forever. Yes, Edward. How much did you feel bound to the play? As you were in- I felt very bound at first. Um, and I thought, you know, anything that you think is going to make something easier always winds up making it harder. And uh, so I really had to get away. I mean, you guys, it, it isn't the play. I mean, you know, you guys, you know, can hear that because you knew the play really well. And, and I, I, I was really... I did it because I, I, I needed the security of the armature of it. And I knew, basically knew these characters and I just followed them. I mean, for a year, I didn't even know I was writing a book. You know, it just, there just, was like a page more every couple of days. And then suddenly it started to come together and I said, Jesus, I'm writing a book. And, um, there's an interesting story about how it all finished. I never knew the book would be published. and I, I went back to live in New York for the last couple of months while I was doing it just to sort of feel what New York was like again. And when I came back, I was prepared for it not to be published. I was just happy that I did it. And um, my agent... My, my book agent, I asked somebody out here, I said, who's your favorite literary agent in New York? And he told me the name of this person. My first job in New York City in 1974 was working in a publishing house and this girl had this desk next to me and she was insane. I mean, you know, she was, you know, she would go home with these huge bags full of manuscripts and she talked a mile a minute and she had become a major literary agent. And, you know, 38 years later, I emailed her and I said, do you remember me? And she called within 60 seconds So I said I've written a book. She said, "Send it to me." I sent it to her, and she called me that night at basically two a.m. New York time. Said, "I want to represent it." You said, "You know, I can sell this." Many people turned it down. Um, uh, This is is, yeah. This is about like publishing, and some of the people who wanted this wanted it wanted me to make certain changes in it. And uh, she said to me, she said, this is not Hollywood. She said, the person who wants it the way it is, is out there. Do not sell yourself because somebody says, if you change it, we will like it. That's not the book business. And it was, I, I could hardly believe it. But that's how it happened. and finally we found that person. and we turned down, you know, you know, some major houses who wanted me to make it a young adult novel, who wanted me to take out this character, who wanted me to do this, who wanted me to do that. And I was such a, you know, a, a beaten puppy that I would say, "Sure, sure, sure, sure sure. She would say, no, no, no." That was one important thing that I learned. Hi. I have to go. Bye. Thank you for coming. Gail Hawkman. Yeah, she's incredible. And, you know, I mean, I've, this whole process, I've learned a lot, if anybody ever wants to write a book here, I mean, it's wonderful to have this, this, an audience and have friends here, but what really matters is that you're like, you know, Professor Harold Hill on The Music Man. I mean, you just go, or Willy Loman in Death of a Salesman, that you schlep from bookstore to bookstore, making relationships with the people who work there and who are the booksellers. That, you know, it's, it's, and that's been really fun for me to sort of start realizing, would you say that that's so? That, that, it's really, really important to, to know that people will be handling your books. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because um, you know, that relationship is really, really important. You're, you're terrific, by the way. Oh, thank you. I've been hosting events for 10 years, Sorry. so I think you're, you're a really terrific author. Oh, yeah. thanks. Thanks. That's really nice. It's really nice well this is, other thing I want to say about this experience for me and because people I know people here well enough I can say this it has changed my life and it's gotten me off my ass and out the house, out of the house you know I mean I was for a long time saying oh I'll just go to bed at eight you know and uh, I don't really feel like meeting you for dinner or you know why would I ever want to see another movie I've seen plenty of movies you know and just writing this I mean you you have to get get into gear and you have to do Facebook and you have to do Twitter and you know when you have to do those things they actually become fun and I you know I have a website I used to shudder at the notion of people who had a website but I have a website you know and it's and it's all in the name of this book which I really really want to get into people's hands and however it gets there. So anybody here who likes it, please, you know, tell your friends. You know, uh, uh, you know, do it on. T- if somebody here is a genius at this, who I'm looking at right now, you know, you know, tell your, tell your everybody's. And because uh, I think that's how things happen. I had to fight for this title, by the way. This was a nightmare. Um, the title that I like, and I went to the publisher, and he said everybody here hates it. It was the first little dose of cold water, um, bucket of cold water. He said, everybody hates it, and sales says it'll, we can't use it. So I then, you know, went and did about 50 other titles. And I I almost brought some, because they were very far afield, and then after about a month of that, they called me and said, oh, we decided we really love it. (laughs) So... (laughs) yeah. Many a tale. Many a tale here. So, and anybody else like to ask anything, or say anything, or... Can we read another passage all over? Yes, hi. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Um, so you mentioned that
1: there was, you know, a transition between
0: television writing and novel writing, obviously. What were your coping mechanisms while you were, like, pulled up writing? I have no coping mechanisms. I have every bad habit in the world. <laughs> and. Oh God, you know, I mean just, just, you know, never getting dressed, endless pornography, you know, stuffing my face, um, sour attitude, you know, um, everything, you know, destructive and negative. <laughs> <laughs> Good. <laughs> and every writer says the same thing because it's always true. The internet is not your friend as a writer. It's your friend once you've written the book. But not while you're writing the book. I've heard many writers say that, they, that porn has become a really important part of their life. It is? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. <not> <laughs> no, yeah. No. And I always meant, by the way. Yeah, keep that in mind. <laughs> OK, well, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for coming.